Well, welcome. Glad that you're here. Happy Easter to you. It's a fantastic day, and many of you gathered with us on Friday uh, at Youth City as we did kind of a worship night, a celebrating Good Friday, and kind of leaning into the significance of that day, and here we are just a couple days later, and we celebrate the significance of this day. Now, many of you, maybe uh, this is your first time back into church, and uh, I want to welcome you here. I know it takes courage coming to a new place, and just kind of this journey that maybe you're on kind of taking up a friend's invite, and I'm glad that you're here, and we want to be a place where you can investigate a little bit. In fact, you're here on a great Sunday because we've been in this series we just started last week called The Case for Christ, and it really is about investigating who Jesus is. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, you're here on a great, great night, and I wanna personally invite you back for the next couple weeks as we finish this up and looking at some things, and tonight we're gonna look at something that I think is incredibly important. In fact, it's the most important thing when it comes to the Christian faith. Now, many of you maybe have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and tonight, as we look at the reliability of the resurrection, maybe this kind of just shures up your faith in your own heart to let you know that, that this isn't something that's a myth, this isn't something that like you have to be embarrassed about, this is something you can really kind of hang your hat on and, and hold on to as it holds you and for others of you who are maybe on a spiritual search, maybe there's some dots that are gonna connect for you. In fact, we said last week that some of the most important things in life we have to wrestle through. We have to wrestle and, and kind of wrestle them to the ground to understand them a little bit, and that when we do that, we actually go through a process that it makes it deeper and more meaningful to us, and some people approach faith that way. They either wrestle and go, okay, I, I'm gonna push it out at arm's length and keep it there because either it wants me to change things or I, I just don't know if I can get there. You know, my science doesn't it disprove uh, this whole thing and, and, and just kind of keep it at arm's length. And, but for other people, they wrestle long enough to get to the place where maybe they are opened up to the truth a little bit. And we said last week this idea, listen, wherever you are in that journey, if you will just trust a little bit, if you just kind of take a little bit of a risk and turn in God's direction, you will discover that God has always been turned toward you. And so if you would just do that, and so if you are kind of new and in your spiritual journey, I just want to invite you, even if it's only for this series, that you would just open your mind up, open your heart up a little bit to investigate this a little bit, turn in God's direction. And tonight, we want to look at kind of what um, many scholars kind of say is the linchpin of Christianity, meaning if the resurrection isn't true, then what are we doing here? Really, that's kind of what the Apostle Paul said in the verses that we read at the very start of this whole service. So if you have your Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15. We're gonna be in that for a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, that's what we're gonna look at tonight. We're gonna try to answer three simple questions and get our mind around that, and then what does that mean? And next week, we're gonna look at this like, so what, okay? So kind of the so what of where we're going tonight. But I wanna look at some of these questions, because really, this idea, the resurrection of Jesus is either the greatest hoax perpetrated upon humanity, or it's the greatest event in history. There is no middle ground. It's either one or the other. You can't just be halfway on this kind of thing, because if it's true, it confirms that Jesus really is the unique Son of God and opens the door for us to have eternal life with God through faith in him. If it's false, well then, what are we doing here? If it's false, well then, Jesus is just kind of another legend or a lie. He's just kind of a martyr of this revolution that tried to start and it got wiped out. 
But if the resurrection is true, well then friend, it changes absolutely everything. And so that's what we wanna look at tonight. The Apostle Paul begins talking about this and he, he kinda really zeroes in on this in 1 Corinthians 15, here's what he says. Verse three, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, uses Peter's Aramaic name there in some of your texts, and then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, meaning you could go interview them. You could go to their house, have dessert, find out what did they see. Most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Who's James? Well, James, remember, is his half-brother who did not believe in Jesus being the Messiah. I mean, try to convince your brother that you're the Messiah. That doesn't really go well, does it? So James is like, not convinced at all, like Jesus, Messiah, come on. I ate cereal with him growing up. Um, but like this idea, but something happened for James, because here's what we know about James. James actually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and was martyred for his faith about his brother being the Messiah. So something happened in his life. Now either he ate some wacky tortillas and went nuts, or something happened to him. So that James being there is important. And last of all, he appeared to me. And Paul goes on, he makes this statement of saying, look, after that he appeared to all these things. If Christ had not been raised, then what are we doing? Then you're still, you're, your faith is useless. You're still stuck in your sin. Our hope in Christ, if it's only for this life, well then we are to be more pitied than anyone on the face of the planet. That's a pretty bold claim from an early leader, the one who writes most of the New Testament. Something happened. Now, there is no way for us to sum up every bit of research about the resurrection, about the life of Jesus. So I think in, in lieu of what we're understanding about the case for Christ, remember we introduced uh, that book uh, to you, that movie that's out right now about Lee Strobel's life and his investigation, in short, He's an investigative reporter at the Chicago Tribune. His wife becomes a follower of Jesus. He's convinced that she's joined a cult. He sets out for 22 months to investigate and research and interview scientists and uh, theologians all over the world to find out if Christianity is true. And really his intent was to prove it wrong and even ask some of the people, hey, what's, what's the thing I should go after? And they said, well, the resurrection. Because if the resurrection isn't true, then like the whole thing is a house of cards and it falls apart. So he spent months researching. Now he comes to conclusion, you can kind of maybe guess what the conclusion that he comes to is, but he did his own investigation, his own search, and he talks about this idea that really you could boil it down to three simple questions. Was Jesus really alive to begin with? Did Jesus really die? And did Jesus come back to life again? And if you can answer those three questions, then you really have validity and credibility to this whole story of Jesus and the point of the resurrection. So was Jesus alive, kind of point A? So let's look at that a little bit. The idea um, that some people have said, well, this is a myth. Now most historians will say Jesus really was a real person. This Jesus of Nazareth lived in the first century. He's real, he's legit. But other people have said, well, no, it's really mythology, it's fake. In fact, uh, if you've seen the Da Vinci Code, 
they kind of talk about this idea that the story of Jesus was just borrowed from mythological things, was borrowed from things in the past. In fact, one of those uh, mythology parts where it says uh, Christianity gains its stuff is from a former, uh, earlier religion that was there about following this god, this mythological god called Mithras. And Mithras, uh, just listen to kind of descriptions of what people said about that. Mithras was born of a virgin, born in a cave, On December 25th, he was considered a great traveling teacher, had 12 disciples, sacrificed himself for world peace, was buried in a tomb, and rose on the third day. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Until you actually begin to study Mithras and begin to understand it, and you look at what Dr. Edwin Yamanuchi, as he studied this, here's what he came up with. Well, here's the thing. Mithras was born of a virgin in a cave. No, he wasn't. If you actually go back and study the mythology report of where he came from, he was actually emerged full grown out of a rock. That's kind of where he got his start. Born on December 25th, okay, that might be right, but that's the day we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but that's not necessarily the day Jesus was born. You know that, right? Uh, As you study history, we really don't know when the day that Jesus was born. We celebrate that because Christians early on wanted to kind of take back the winter solstice and so much of the pagan holidays that were going on around that time. And so they adopted this to be the time that we would remember Jesus entering into our world and being a part of the Christmas story. Mithras was a traveling teacher with 12 disciples. No. Actually, if you go back and study, uh, he may have traveled around a little bit, according to mythology, but he had like one follower in Iran and like two over in Rome. So that's all he had. He sacrificed himself for world peace. No, he killed a bull once, but he also killed a bunch of people. Mithras uh, was buried in a tomb, resurrected after three days. No, he wasn't. He's on record to believe uh, there's nothing about his death and nothing about his resurrection. So when you begin to examine this idea, Christianity did not borrow the story and the backdrop of Jesus from anywhere. In fact, here's what one theologian writes. It's nearly universal consensus of all scholars around the world is that there are no examples of any mythological gods dying and rising from the dead that came before Jesus. There might be some now, but that was after Jesus. After the resurrection from Christianity, There is, as far as I'm aware, no evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is any kind of mythological construct, that you can't make connections here. In fact, historian Paul Meyer says this, the total evidence is so overwhelming, so overpowering, so absolute that only the shallowest of intellects would dare to deny that Jesus actually existed. So Jesus really did exist. He was alive. So, did Jesus really die? That's the question we've gotta ask. We've gotta figure out, okay, what happened to this idea of the resurrection? Because some people claim that he didn't really die. In fact, Islam talks about Jesus not dying, going back to one verse in the Quran, who says that Jesus didn't die. But that really comes from the prophet Muhammad that says an angel appeared to him some 600 years after Jesus and said that that story wasn't true. No evidence for it totally ignoring any of the eyewitnesses that actually happened in history and what we have recorded inside the Bible, outside the Bible. 
And so how do you stack that up when you really put it up to a historical context? And how do you find out the evidence for it? Well, you have to go with what you've seen. You have to go with what you know. You have to go with what's credible. This idea, this question of Jesus, could he actually suffer through the crucifixion and not really have died? Is that possible? Some theologians or some scholars will debate and talk about this idea of the swoon theory. How many of you have ever passed out before? Like passed out for a couple minutes or something, right? Some people say, well, Jesus was hung on the cross and he just kind of swooned, which is really more of a romantic word. And when I studied the crucifixion, there's nothing romantic in that at all. But this idea of maybe passing out, could that be possible that that happened? And so that's one of the theories people run with. In fact, that's one of the theories that Lee Strobel begins to investigate. And we're gonna watch a clip from the movie here as he actually flies out to California to interview this scientist and interview this medical doctor who's done a lot of research around that. And you'll get to hear a little bit of his story. So let's watch that together. So forgive me for making you travel all the way out here, but when someone rings me up and says he wants to dispute the most significant event in human history, it's important that we do it face to face, don't you? Yeah, that's fine. I, uh, I, I appreciate your time. You. Right. Uh, so we're uh, just doing some research on the effect of stress on the hormone levels in mice, which is an ongoing project of ours. But I assure you, you shall have my undivided attention. <clears throat> okay, I'm, then I'm just going to jump right in. Um, so my line of attack is this. The reason the eyewitnesses were able to see Jesus after Golgotha is because he never died on the cross. Because if he doesn't die, there's no resurrection. Right? That's right. So, so whether or not Jesus himself or, uh, or someone else took him off of the cross early, or if he fakes his own death, it doesn't matter. It completely discounts every aspect of the resurrection. Right, the swoon theory. Yeah, but he passed out. He didn't die. I'm afraid there's a long line of skeptics in front of you with that hypothesis including only a billion Muslims the world over who also don't believe that Jesus died on the cross because the Quran says so. With all due respect to Islam, the Quran was written six centuries after Christ. I prefer my historical sources a bit closer to that. I understand, but, but, but you concede that it's possible. Mm. <laughs> Mr. Strobel, I am a medical doctor and a scientist. I have seen a great many strange phenomena in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. But the swim theory is rubbish. <laughs> Rubbish, That's a, is that a, a medical opinion? <laughs> you know, it is, actually. Um, swan theorists tend to skim over the fact that Jesus was flogged prior to his crucifixion. Do you know what happens in a Roman flogging? Um, yeah, the person is lashed with a whip. No, not lashed. Scourged and pummeled savagely. You see, the, the guy whip is braided with metal balls and bone fragments. The flesh on Jesus' back would have been shredded. The very muscles and sinews themselves laid open to exposure. The flogging itself would have left Jesus in critical condition for massive blood loss, which is why he collapsed under the weight of the cross that the Romans made him carry through town. Okay, so is it possible that Jesus survives being spiked to the cross? Oh yes, you could survive it, but it's child's play compared to what comes next in a crucifixion. Slow, agonizing death by asphyxiation. Mr. Strobel, the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the best attested events in the ancient world. 
There is no historical evidence of anyone anywhere ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Oh. And, if you will, the final nail in the coffin, at least from the theory, is this. When the soldiers thrust their spear between Jesus' ribs, do you know what came out? Blood and water. Which we now know is a description of pericardial effusion as a result of death by asphyxiation. This is not a condition anyone could fake. And so to answer your question, yes, it is my medical opinion that Jesus Christ died on that cross. But, but, but I, gotta, I have a real problem with most of the experts that I've talked to here. Which is? Uh, which is that most of them are not impartial. And if I'm going to take a guess, I would say that you are not either. And you would be correct, sir. Though I have learned that most impartial travelers who undertake this journey rarely remain so. However, I can refer you to one of the most impartial sources that I know. Would you trust the Journal of the American Medical Association? Of course, it is a stellar scientific journal. You and I will admit that. On the physical death of Jesus. <clears throat> Clearly the weight of the medical and historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Doc, I gotta tell you, you're, uh, you're not telling me what I hope to hear today. So this question of did Jesus really die? Even an atheist New Testament scholar, Luderman, said this, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. So even people who don't believe in faith in Christ would go, well, yeah, of course, Jesus died. This was not a fainting accident. So, which brings us to the third question, probably the most important. If Jesus was a real person, really did live, if Jesus really did die, on a crucifixion under Pontius Pilate with his goal of what that was gonna be, whether you wanna buy that or not, but if it really did happen, did he really come back to life? Because that, check your pulse, has never happened. Like, this is the only time we see it. Uh, other times in the New Testament, if you believe the Gospels where Jesus raised someone from the dead, but that was so crazy that people were like, what in the world is going on here? Because that just doesn't happen. And so, can we look at some key strands of evidence for that? There's the proof of the empty tomb. We know Jesus was taken down by Joseph of Arimathea and kind of put in his family tomb. We know that. We don't just know that as Christians, we know that from history. We know that that actually happened. He was dead, he was put in a tomb. Something happened three days later because the tomb was empty. How do you explain that? Because if you're Rome and this little uh, sect of Christians, followers of Jesus, starts telling this story that Jesus came back to life, what would you do to squash out this beginning of a revolution? You would simply go to the tomb, open it up, say here's the bones, right? But that didn't happen. If you're the Jewish leaders, 
and all of a sudden this little Christian sect is beginning to talk about this resurrection of Jesus that you wanted to have crucified and that you did have crucified, what would you do? You would ask for the body to be exhumed and you would look at it. The problem is no body, no crime, okay? That whole idea, okay? There's no body there. And so what do you do with that? There's this empty tomb. It's fact that it's in Jerusalem. This is three days later. This is not like something that happened three centuries later. This is three days later. People understood and knew, and they could go, and it was empty. So what do you do with that? What do you look at? This Jerusalem factor says, look, there's this idea. There's also this idea of the criterion of embarrassment. Now, look, don't hate the player, hate the game, but... <clears throat> this idea that women were the first to see Jesus would not have flown in court of law back then. In fact, in the first century, women were not allowed to give testimony in court because you were not deemed as reliable. Sorry, okay? That's just the way it was back then. I'm not saying it is now, okay? I love you. Um, but <clears throat> that's the way it was. So if this story is a made-up story, you would not make up a story with women being the first to see the resurrected Jesus. That wouldn't happen. You would say it was Peter. You would say it was John. You would say it was anybody else to give credibility to your story unless the disciples didn't make up the story and they weren't worried about it being weird because it was already weird. People don't come back to life, but Jesus did. And so if you're telling a true story, you just let the facts be where they are. And this is the way it was. And so this is what's transpiring and this is what you see. You have the enemy uh, substantiation, this idea again that Rome and that the Jewish leaders couldn't produce the body. There was a rumor you can read about in Matthew that the disciples stole the body. Well, okay, Rome didn't steal the body because they would have produced it. The Jewish leaders wouldn't have stole the body because they would have produced it because they didn't want this to go. The disciples really have no means, no connection, no power, no money, no ability to do what would have to have been done in order to do that. And so what's said is that the Romans actually started this tradition to try to put the blame off of something going wrong from their side. So the real question is how did it get empty? And you have to wrestle with that. Because I don't think it's historic and logical to say that the disciples stole the body. Here's why. They had to have faith despite extreme persecution. Meaning, some people die for a lie. We know that's true. Because they believe the lie to be true. But no one dies for a lie that you've made up that you know isn't true. And no one goes to their death defending something that they know they made up, that they could very easily get out of this death penalty if they just said, oh, we made it up. Just kidding. I love what Blaise Pascal is a philosopher. He said this, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Matthew, killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Egypt when he was pulled by horses through the city until he died. Andrew was beaten, tied to a cross, wasn't nailed to a cross, hung there for two days, preaching to the people about Jesus before he finally succumbed. Philip was scourged, thrown in prison, and then crucified. 
Thaddeus and Simon, both crucified in the early 70 AD. Luke was hung in Greece. Peter was crucified, chose to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy or deemed himself worthy to die the same way Jesus did. Thomas, stabbed by a spear in India on a mission trip. Jude, killed by arrows. James was beheaded, the brother of Jesus, for his faith, not choosing to deny. The apostles did not appear on Oprah. They did not go on a book tour. These are people who lived depraved, hunted, persecuted for the story they told. You don't make up a lie and live that way if it's not true. So, 500 witnesses. You go through the New Testament, you begin to understand that if you were to line up all the witnesses that the scriptures point to, you would interview, if you interviewed people for 15 minutes at a time, round the clock, no breaks, it would take you from Monday morning breakfast to Friday morning or Friday dinner to interview everyone for 15 minutes, all the witnesses that are talked about in the Bible. How could you listen to 129 hours of eyewitness accounts and not see something to be true? We talk about in our justice system, if there's one witness, if there's two maybe, if that's solid cold, well we have tons of witnesses. We have nine ancient sources, four of them in the Bible, or four or five in the Bible, four or five outside the Bible, that talk about the disciples living this out and saying that this is true. The first Corinthians chapter 15, what we read earlier, is one of the earliest known creeds in all of scripture. We know Paul wrote Corinthians in about 54, 55 AD. We know Jesus died in 30 or 33, depending on the, the, kinda, the calendar of how things lay out. We know that Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus then. He was persecuting the church and killing Christians. Jesus appears to him, and all of a sudden he's changed. That happens about two years or so after uh, the resurrection. He goes in and he talks with the apostles. This creed was probably given to him that he writes in 1 Corinthians even back then, within two or three years of this. And so we know it's actually already happening. We have this overwhelming evidence for our faith. In fact, historian James Dunn said this, this tradition that we can entirely be confident was formulated as a tradition within months of Jesus' death. This idea of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what we passed on to you, that you may know. This is historical gold when you're doing research. We have the sermon summaries in the book of Acts. We have the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have Clement writing about the disciples. We have Polycarp who's writing about the disciples, sources outside of the Bible who are writing about what is being spoken about and this is happening close to the source. The evidence is powerful and persuasive. It's overwhelming for this idea of the resurrection of Jesus. Does it still take faith? Yeah. Yeah, it does. That's why faith is wrestling. That's why it's coming to this place where you've gotta put your faith and trust in it. Some people ask, okay, well why did Jesus go through all this trouble? Why did he do this? Love. He loves you. 
He loves the possibility of having a relationship connection with you, not just in this day, but for every day moving forward, on into forever. That's what motivated him. That's what motivated him as the son of God to come here realizing that it wasn't good enough for us to have a list of rules to try to work our way up to a perfect and holy God. We'd never get there. But instead, God himself would come to where we are and meet us in our season, in our space, and he would make a way. And the crucifixion and the resurrection, the crucifixion is God paying a penalty that you can never pay. That Jesus' sacrifice that night on that Friday, that day, is taking a payment that you and I could never pay. All of our brokenness, all of our rebellion, all of our sin, all the ways that we mess up, God took that. And he took the, the punishment for that that we deserved. The resurrection is simply the check that he wrote cashed. That's what it means. It cleared. God said, I'll take that. And now Jesus' righteousness, his goodness is placed upon us through faith that it's not based on what I do anymore. It's based on what Jesus did, what he accomplished. And that's how we can know that God loves you. So you may be struggling in scenarios and circumstances that are going on in your life. That doesn't mean those go away. It doesn't mean it's smooth sailing. What it means is that God will never leave you, will never forsake you that you'll never be alone walking those steps out of life. That's the beauty of the gospel. See, the reality is we can understand the reliability of the resurrection, and the resurrection, if true, changes everything. It changes how we can live on a Monday. It changes how we can negotiate and navigate a tense relationship. It changes how we see people around us, it changes how we interact with people, it changes how we spend our resources, it changes how we see the world, it changes how we deal with forgiveness. Are we reluctant or, or do we let forgiveness flow? See, the resurrection, if true, is the power to change everything in your life and in your living. So we base so many of our decisions off reliability, right? Isn't that why you read Consumer Reports? Isn't that why you read the reviews on Amazon before you buy something? Isn't that why you're like me and, and you read about it and you understand what other customers have written about it and then when you read something and you say, well, gosh, it seems like all these people had this kind of experience. It looks like this product is really nice, but it seems like it sucks. And so you don't buy it, right? So we base our decisions off reliability. Can it be seen as true? So let me ask you, is there enough reliability for you to see the resurrection as true? I think the answer is yes. The real question is, will you? See, each one of us has to come to that place where we say, yes, I'll buy it, or no, I won't. There's no middle ground. Maybe the middle ground is I'll keep investigating. Okay. If that's you, then keep investigating. Smart people have thought through this. Intelligent people have weighed out the evidence. Even simple people like me 
have waded through this, and I'm telling you, I can't get around the unbelievable credibility of the resurrection of Jesus. And I've given my life to it. Everything I do is about helping people connect those dots because it changed me. And friend, today is Easter. And my simple invitation to you is this opportunity can change you as well. Do you have to have all the things answered and all the the I's dotted and the T's crossed and understand everything in the Bible? No. There's still questions for me. But I think it comes down to what we said last week. You don't have to know everything in the Bible to understand the God of the Bible and to understand that he loves you. He knows your name and he's provided a way for you to have life with him, a relationship with him. Not a religious thing that you have to kind of keep up with, but an actual relationship with him through faith in his son Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection was payment for you and he made a way and Easter is the invitation, the unashamed, unapologetic push that God says, I love you, I love you, I love you. Will you choose me? That's what Easter says. I did everything I could to prove to you that I love you. Will you love me in return? That's the question Easter asks. And so next week we're gonna pick up with this and begin to say, okay, so what? So what does that begin to mean? How does that begin to influence and impact life? But I'd be remiss if I didn't close tonight and say, look, John 1.15 or 1.12 is kind of the key verse for this whole series, this idea of the gospel laid out in a simple, understandable way. Yet to all who do receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become a child of God. It's believing in Jesus that he really did live, that he really did die, and he really did come back to life for you. It's believing that intellectually, and it's also receiving that, much like receiving a birthday gift or a Christmas gift. You've gotta get to that place where you say, yes, I want that. And as you take that, then you're ushered into a relationship and a friendship with God that you can never lose, never have stolen, never misplace, and you get to have life with God. And so the invitation for you tonight is real simple. We're gonna continue in worship here in a moment. We're gonna continue in communion. And so this is a communion we do uh, almost every week. And we have an opportunity for you to, as a follower of Jesus, to remember his life and his death and his resurrection, his body broken for you. The blood that he shed on the cross was for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as you take that juice and hold that cracker representing his body, we're, we're kind of re-anchoring ourselves to say, yes, God, I believe that what you did was for me and that you've made life with you possible through my faith in Jesus. Now, you may want to sit there and just kind of reflect on some of the things you've been hearing and some of the things we've been seeing in this movie as we've seen clips from that. Maybe there's some things, this wrestling part of stuff we're talking about. We want you to have space to wrestle with that. And so we've got communion tables down front and here in the middle we've got gluten-free crackers down here if you need that. We're gonna continue on in worship and celebration of Easter. And I wanna invite you to really think and wrestle with where are you at 
Is there reliability for the resurrection? If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you're seeing that in a fresh way today, and you're going, man, I I didn't realize my faith was more solid than I thought. Maybe you're investigating, and maybe you're beginning to see, wow, maybe there's something to this. And I wanna give you some space to wrestle with that. So Father, we pray tonight as we continue on in service, we just remember Jesus, your body, given up for us, sacrificed on our behalf, the blood that you shed, yeah, the crucifixion was incredibly painful. An experience like none other. And you didn't run away from that. You ran through that. Because your love for us motivated you. The resurrection is proof that God accepted your payment and what you did for us on our behalf and that we could put our faith in you and have life with you. So Father, as we remember that in communion, as we sing some more worship songs to you, we we pray that you would stir our hearts in a fresh and new way this Easter. God, if there's any here who are wrestling with that, I pray that you'd meet them in those spots, that they'd turn in your direction and, and be captivated by the fact that you've always been turned in theirs. And God, for the rest of us, May we continue to anchor ourselves more and more and more to the hope that we have in Jesus, to the grace that we have in Jesus, to the life that we have in and through him. We ask that, and in his precious name we pray, amen.